By the 1640s, Parliament was at the very centre of British history. The accession of Charles I to the throne in 1625 began a bitter rivalry for dominance with a king whose political and religious views brought him into head-to-head conflict with an increasingly assertive parliament. For two decades, civil war, regicide, a republic and military rule were all played out on the parliamentary stage. These events, which affected the course of British history then and now, are revealed in the latest volumes of the monumental History of Parliament project, which began before the Second World War. This new work provides detailed, authoritative studies of every parliament, as well as fascinating, carefully researched accounts of every MP and his constituency in the tumultuous years between 1640 and 1660. The volume, which includes 8,000 pages, about 7 million words, has been edited by Dr Stephen Roberts, who led a dedicated group of five historians to produce this outstanding piece of scholarship. It provides unique insights into a period of history which has shaped our constitution and modern parliamentary government. Dr Roberts talks to our contributing editor, Professor Andrew Hopper of Oxford University. I'd like to start off our conversation with asking you a question. What is the history of Parliament? Well, the history of Parliament is a long-standing academic project and has as its aim to produce biographies of every member of Parliament that's ever sat in the House of Commons. And recently we've taken on also the project of producing biographies of peers, those who sat in the House of Lords. It really has as its aim to produce biographies of MPs from parliaments from the earliest times, but we've not actually achieved that in either direction. It was established initially before the Second World War by the initiative of a notable historian and politician called Colonel Josiah Wedgwood, who was one of the famous pottery family from Staffordshire. And he had the idea of producing biographies of every MP and promoted the project quite energetically before the Second World War. And a couple of volumes under his auspices were produced. But then nothing happened during the Second World War. And then in 1951, it was re-established on its present terms and conditions with a grant from Parliament. It's funded entirely by both Houses of Parliament. And so what's the history of Parliament's relationship with the current Parliament? Does it have MPs among its patrons, for instance, or maybe a parliamentary committee? It has a board of trustees. It's set up as a charitable trust. That's why it's called the Trust. And on the board, there are MPs and peers in equal measure. So most of them are serving members of the House of Commons or House of Lords, with occasionally some people who sit on the board by virtue of special qualification or interest or something. There's also an editorial board of scholars that supports it. They're all eminent scholars in their field who comment on the quality of the work and act as a kind of uh, quality control mechanism. And how long have you been involved with the history of Parliament? I've been involved for 25 years. I went to the history first in 1997 after a career in adult education and have been there ever since, mainly as editor of the House of Commons 1640 to 60 section, but also for a three-year period as director of the project as a whole. Which parliaments will be covered then by the 1640 to 60 section? Well, eight parliaments in total, if you consider the 
rival Oxford Parliament of Charles I at Oxford to be a proper parliament. Certainly the king did, though the Westminster Parliament didn't, of course. So we've got two parliaments that met in 1640, in April and again in November that year. We consider the Rump Parliament, which sat between late 1648 and 53 to be a parliament in the way we treat it. There's a parliament in 1653, two under the protectorate of Oliver Cromwell in 1654 and 1656. And the final one, 1659, was the parliament of Richard Cromwell. So if my maths is correct, that's a total of eight parliaments in terms of our consideration. From what I've just been saying, it'll be obvious that this is a very complicated period of parliamentary history. In fact, there isn't a more complicated one. And that does partly reflect the length and scale of the project. It's extremely complicated, even for professionals to get their heads around. And of course, for the first time in history, you have MPs representing Scotland and Ireland in the 1650s protectorate parliaments. How many of those will there be? Well, actually, the first time that Scottish and Irish MPs sat in Parliament was before the ones you mentioned. There were members representing Scotland and Ireland in the 1653 Parliament, the nominated assembly, often called Barebones Parliament. But in 1654, 1656 and 1659 Parliaments, there were 30 Scottish MPs and 30 Irish MPs. So, as you say, that's another unique aspect of this period but for the first time places in the constituent nations of what we call Great Britain or the UK or whatever you want to call it were represented in Parliament, other than just England and Wales. What was the traditional role of Parliament then by the early 17th century? How exactly had it evolved up to the Civil War? Well, the Parliament was entirely in the gift of the King. There was no institution called Parliament that was obliged to meet. The King called the Parliament when he wanted money, basically, because... We evolved in this country into a situation where taxation was granted by Parliament, direct taxation. So the King would call, or the Queen would call a Parliament if he or she required money. And the usual need for money by a government in those days was, of course, to fight wars. That was the primary purpose of a Parliament, or parliamentary taxation, to fund the, the monarch's adventures abroad very often. There was certainly no spending on social services of any kind in those days. But in return for granting taxation, those who assembled in Parliament were entitled to bring their grievances to the King. And we had a situation in Tudor times onwards where Parliament's grievances became more and more volubly expressed. And so this led to a conflict between King and Parliament where the King was insisting on financial grants from MPs and the MPs themselves were insisting on the redress of their grievances. And in those kind of conflicts lay the disputes between the Stuart kings and their parliaments. Things got difficult under James I and even more difficult under Charles I. And in the end, in exasperation, Charles I decided to dispense with parliaments altogether. So between 1629, which was the year when parliament was ended very violently with a situation where there was disorder in the House where the MPs were trying to make the Speaker stay seated while the King's government was trying to shut the Parliament down. After that disruption, there was then an 11-year period of no parliaments, the 11 years tyranny, it often used to be called, the period when there was no parliamentary government. So 1640 was quite a key date because Parliament met again after an interval of 11 years. 
So the period of parliamentary history before 1640, to sum up, is one of rocky conflict between the monarch and parliament. And it seemed at one stage that parliaments would disappear altogether from the way this country was governed. So in what ways were the parliaments of the 1640s and then the 1650s different from their predecessors? Well, I suppose the key difference was that although they met initially, the two parliaments that met in 1640 were at the behest of the king, the long parliament got into such a conflict with Charles that it eventually challenged the king and the civil war was the consequence. And as soon as the civil war broke out, then parliament was effectively ruling by its own authority. That was quite unprecedented in English history. There was never a time before when Parliament could rule on its own authority like that and recruit to itself in by-elections as Parliament did. And although the Parliaments of the 1650s were called at the behest of the Lord Protector, for example, in the later 1650s, Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell, The result of the long Parliament's challenge to the King in the Civil War meant that Parliaments were therefore henceforth centre stage and couldn't easily be dispensed with and were written into the Constitution. So the Parliaments of the 1640s and 50s were much more solid and secure than any Parliament had ever been before. And this did a lot for the culture of Parliament that enabled MPs to conduct their business much more self-confidently, knowing that they weren't going to be turned out by the king at his behest at any moment. And it led to the development, really, if you like, of quite centrally of the modern parliamentary culture that we've got. So what kinds of people became the MPs? If you had to single out one particular social class as being dominant in the parliaments, all parliaments, really, in the period we're talking about, it would have to be the gentry Those are the people who had wealth and position and social prestige in their communities, people with a long family history behind them, people of substance. So they were the most important single class. But there was also a very substantial class of merchants, particularly from the City of London, who were crucial really to the financing of the parliamentary war effort, for example, in the 1640s. And in the parliaments we're talking about, the merchant class would be the second most important group. And we shouldn't forget either the lawyers, who were an important class, or the speakers, for example, in the House of Commons in the period, were lawyers of one kind or another. They were quite dominant. The only other class, I suppose, that you could say became important during the 1640s and 50s were the very lesser gentry, the people who'd acquired some substance through serving as army officers in the army, who were um, given their status and authority by virtue of military service. So that gives you the general composition of the parliaments and the difference between the parliaments of the 1640s and 50s and the earlier ones was that there was a greater mix of people and social classes in the 40s and 50s compared to earlier where the gentry really were absolutely dominant. And so how much did the size of the membership in the House of Commons fluctuate over this period? In the 1640s and 50s, it fluctuated quite a lot for various reasons. In April 1640, there were 493 MPs sitting for 259 constituencies in England and Wales alone. That figure rose during the Long Parliament because new constituencies were created mainly because Parliament wanted to increase its weight and heft, as it were, against 
the king. And so it created constituencies to bring in new MPs who would help the parliamentary cause. The shortest or the smallest parliament in terms of absolute numbers was the parliament of 1653, which was also unusual in not being elected. It was nominated. It's called the nominated assembly very often. And there were only 144 MPs in that, although for the first time there were small numbers sitting for Scotland and Ireland, five for Scotland and six for Ireland. Then the numbers started to recover again in the parliaments of the Cromwellian Protectorate, reaching a total in 1659 of 568 MPs, including 30 for Scotland, 30 for Ireland, and that was the largest House of Commons that had ever sat in English history at that point. Do you have any sense of what attendance was like and how crowded the House of Commons chamber was, and where did they actually meet? Well, taking the last question first, they actually met in the House of Commons, not the House of Commons we know today, which was recreated, rebuilt completely after the Great Fire of 1834 destroyed the parliamentary buildings, but they met in a chamber that ran on a kind of east-west axis, more or less where the House of Commons is now, at least not far from there. The Speaker was at one end of the chamber with his back to the River Thames, and it was a chamber about 90 feet by 26 feet, in fact, with benches that MPs crowded into. But it, the attendances varied a lot, as they do today, as we see from watching proceedings on parliamentary television. You'll see that sometimes the chamber is empty, practically. And it was the same in the period we're talking about. People crowded in for particular occasions, and sometimes it was sparsely attended. The problem with knowing how many were there is one of evidence, you know, where we get our evidence from. So we don't know on a daily basis how many sat in the chamber. We have to interpret bits of evidence to put together a picture. So at important moments, the chamber could well have been very crowded indeed. Very crowded in those key moments. Just as today, there are kind of iconic moments in Parliament and there were episodes similarly in the 17th century when every... MP wanted to be there. But there was never a sense that people couldn't get into the chamber. People would crowd in. And there was a little gallery in the chamber as well at that time that people could sit in and speak from. So there was never a problem of not enough space. One important point to make about the seating arrangements in the House of Commons in the period was that there appears not to have been what we would call today a front bench when we look at where MPs were sitting uh, today, of course, they're all bunched together in the very front bench if they're on the government side and the principal leaders of the opposition are on the opposite bench. We don't get a sense that that was the case in 1640-60. Government supporters and their opponents were rather more scattered than that. Support and opposition to the government doesn't seem to be defined in terms of the seating plan, which I think is quite a significant difference from modern day. That gives us a really good sense of the visual scene of what the House of Commons looked like. Do you have any idea what the acoustics would have been like? One thing we can say about that is that people seem not to have had problems hearing each other. With all this evidence of speeches and diaries and so forth, I don't recall ever coming across an example of an MP saying they couldn't hear what was being said. I don't think that was an issue at all. I think Given the 
physical nature of the chamber, the fact that there was matting of some kind on the floor. And, you know, it wasn't a huge echoey chamber. I think most people could have heard what was going on. It's very different, of course, in churches. And we do have examples of sermons being given across the road from the Palace of Westminster in St. Margaret's Westminster, which was the MP's church, where Sir Simmons Dew says he couldn't hear the preacher because he was mumbling. I don't recall any example of that being recorded for the proceedings in the chamber. So during the debates, were there a lot of coming and going as people came in and left? Yes, as now, you could come and go. There's a lot of coming and going in the chamber, and indeed a lot of coming and going into Parliament itself, because the Commons Chamber was adjacent to the law courts, and Westminster Hall was where the law courts were. So there were people coming and going through the entire parliamentary estate, as we'd call it today, and the Palace of Westminster, as it was called then. A lot of comings and goings with very little attention to security, except that on the most heightened moments of crisis politically, the Speaker would call or or MPs would call for the Commons chamber doors to be locked if there was an issue about security or an issue about public access. So they could make the place more secure, but otherwise there was a lot of coming and going. And I suppose one comment on the comings and goings would be the fact that in 1659, where there were a lot of new MPs in the 1659 Parliament, people who'd never attended before, a man appeared there for several days, a complete imposter who had no business being in Parliament at all. And it turned out that he was somebody who had a, a kind of mental health issue and shouldn't have been there. But it took a lot of time for that to happen. You can't imagine anything like that in Parliament today. And how long could a daily session last? Well, the habitual normal parliamentary day began at eight o'clock with prayers, which is still the case today. They always start the House of Commons proceedings every morning with prayers now, and they did then. And then they would adjourn for lunch. They didn't use the word lunch. They would call it dinner, but that was their midday meal. They might rise about 12 o'clock, 12 till one, and then reassemble at about two o'clock and normally go on till about six or seven in the evening. So if the sessions went on into the evening particularly during the winter, presumably they needed some sort of lighting arrangement. They did need lighting, and what they would do on those occasions is bring in candles, sconces of candles, we would call them, you know, a large number of candles on one great candlestick or sconce. But we know when they required candles because it's recorded in the Commons journals. And, of course, everything that happened in Parliament in those days could be used politically So the call for candles would sometimes be an opportunity for MPs to regroup because proceedings would stop for a minute and it would be a chance to reset the nature of what was going on and for people to huddle and discuss tactics. So the call for candles became a political tool, just as the call to rise or the call for dinner could be. But they certainly needed lighting in the evenings because there were a couple of occasions where they had extremely late nights. Two occasions stand out for late night sittings. One was the 22nd of December, 1641, when they went on until two o'clock in the morning. And the record for these late night sittings was on the 4th of December, 1648, where they went right through the night and didn't rise till 8am the following morning. And that was the most extreme case of all in the period. And how long could some of the parliamentary speeches go on for? 
I think for several hours, occasionally, John Pym was a great deliverer of long speeches. But the construction of speeches in the period is something we don't know a great deal about, because if you think of the number of years and days that people sat, the number of records of speeches is actually quite small, you know, so we tend to know about the extremes. And we also get the problem of speeches being recorded in reported speech, so that Sir Simmons Dews in his diary talks about speeches he made or was going to make, but we don't get a sense of how long it would actually take him to make these interventions. So that's something that's quite hazy, really. So nowadays we have Hansard to record the proceedings of Parliament. How do we know what went on then? What were your primary sources? Well, Hansard, as we know it, is really a 19th century creation. And uh, although speeches were recorded in some places before Hansard, our main source for the project has been the journals of the House of Commons, which are immensely detailed in terms of procedure. We know exactly what motions were put to Parliament and what the voting figures were. But we don't have any particularly authoritative record of speeches that was official. We rely for speeches largely on diarists, that we've got a handful of unofficial diarists who kept the record of Parliament. And if it wasn't for their endeavours, we would know very little of the speeches that were made, except for those that were printed. And the problem with printed speeches, published speeches, is that they were often printed and published for a particular purpose and were crafted, you know, for the audience. So the parliamentary diarists who sat informally taking the record of what they were hearing are our best and most reliable source, really, because they weren't motivated by a particular desire to put across a particular slant on what was going on because they were writing privately, not intended for publication at all. So a slightly more diverse body of people made up the MPs in the 1640s than was normally the case. How did they divide into royalist and parliamentarian at the outbreak of civil war? We should say at one point while we talk about people that we're always talking about men, of course, which is an important point to make. There's very little female influence on anything that's going on in Parliament. But as to how it divides in terms of royalist and parliamentarian, you could say that the royalist party, if that's what we should call it, grew rather slowly and incrementally, really. You couldn't immediately say, for example, in 1640 that there were royalists and parliamentarians these groups tended to be forced into being by particular crisis points. So, for example, in 1641, the attainder and trial and execution of the Earl of Strafford, who was one of Charles I's chief ministers, was an important point at which opinion divided in a kind of party way, with 50-some-odd MPs declaring themselves as Straffordians, people who were prepared to support Strafford against the parliamentary opposition. And there were similar subsequent crunch points where opinion would be forced to divide. And what relationship did the House of Commons have with the House of Lords in the Long Parliament? In the Long Parliament, it was an integral aspect of parliamentary government. There were constant communications between the two houses. And you find MPs in the House of Commons being specialists at taking messages to the Lords, which isn't just carrying up a message, it was involving discussions in the Lords and being a liaison officer, if you like, between the two houses. And that was quite an important aspect of parliamentary government. It is important to fit the House of Lords into this history. 
We've written the history of the House of Commons in this period, but the Lords get a mention on every page practically as far as the long Parliament is concerned. So Commons-Lords relations are something that we've been able to cast a lot of light on, and it's a crucial aspect of the parliamentary history of the period. There were many different names for the parliaments that met between 1640 and 1660. One of them stands out as particularly different from the others, the bare bones or nominated assembly. Could you explain how that was different? The key is in the name nominated assembly. It was different because the members were nominated by Oliver Cromwell and his council rather than elected by the people. In fact, there is some debate as to whether the 1653 Parliament should be called a Parliament at all, in the sense that it wasn't elected. But we treat it as a Parliament in our project. And when the nominated Assembly first assembled in July 1653, within a couple of days, it had started calling itself, declared itself to be a Parliament. And we've called it that in our project, because it to remove it, as it were, from consideration, simply because the members were nominated and not elected, would do violence, really, to understanding the parliamentary history of the period. It's called Barebones Parliament by some, after one of the members whose surname was Barbon or Barebon. But, of course, it also implies a kind of contemptuous phrase or a contemptuous term, Barebones, meaning kind of not a full parliament. So it's a handy term of opprobrium, really, for an assembly for those who opposed it at the time and subsequently. I think the most interesting aspect of the nominated assembly or barebones parliament is its radicalism. It's certainly the most radical of the assemblies that we've been considering in these volumes. It came up with all kinds of ideas for law reform, for social reform, for changing the laws on debt and on agriculture and all kinds of social topics that most parliaments rather recoiled from legislating about. But unfortunately, the divisions within the parliament between the radicals and the conservatives eventually got the better of it, and it had to eventually dissolve itself in December 1653. And of course, the nominated assembly was replaced by the protectorate parliament, and there were three protectorate parliaments. To what extent do you feel they provided stable government during the 1650s? The two parliaments of Oliver Cromwell were summoned by means of Britain's first written constitution, called the Instrument of Government. So to that extent, these parliaments were brought into being as part of a genuine attempt to establish stability, political stability in the country. And for the first time, these parliaments were convened under a constitution rather than just being called by the sovereign at the time. Unfortunately, again, the parliaments of the 1650s had a rocky parliamentary time of it. The 1654 parliament only met for a matter of months and was dissolved by Oliver Cromwell in exasperation without any single piece of legislation having been passed. The 1656 parliament was rather more successful But it did contribute to political stability in the country in the sense that there was representation of the country in Parliament. But I think by the mid-1650s, the political divisions in the country were becoming so severe, really, and so divisive that it was very hard to establish a 
parliament without political division being a dominant theme within it. Given that the Rump Parliament abolished the House of Lords in 1649, why did Cromwell bring into being an upper house in 1658? The so-called other house, they were careful not to call it the House of Lords when it came back into being in the late 1650s, was another attempt to achieve political stability, not least because it was a manifestation, really, by elements of Cromwell's earlier parliaments who wanted a return to previous modes of government. But Cromwell's other house wasn't the same as the House of Lords in 1649, the one that had been abolished. It had no hereditary aspect to it. It was simply another body that was wholly reliant on Lord Protector Cromwell. So to that extent, it was a way of propping up the regime and to make more coherent the support for the government. It was a way, really, I suppose, of bolstering the Cromwellian establishment against its Republican critics. So to round things off, Stephen, um, I'd like to ask what you feel are the key consequences and legacies of the parliamentary history of this revolutionary period for understanding our parliament today? For those who are interested in the technicalities of parliament, the 1640-60 period has lots of aspects such as the divisions and so forth that take place in parliament that are visible today. There are certain aspects of continuity that we can see procedurally. But I think the most important legacy really is the institutional one of showing that in 1640 to 1660, Parliament became an institution that couldn't be dispensed with for the first time. After 1660, no monarch could ignore Parliament. Even those who hated Parliament as a result of the Civil War couldn't wish it away. And instead of being simply an event that took place from time to time at the King's behest, Parliament forced itself into the political landscape of the UK to become an indispensable part of government. And 1640 to 1660 shows in all detail how that took place. So that's probably the most important legacy of the period and probably the most important lesson that one can learn from studying these volumes. Well, I've learnt a tremendous amount from this conversation, Stephen. So on behalf of our listeners, I'd like to give you a big thank you. Thank you, Andy. It's been a great pleasure. We hope you have enjoyed this programme. You can learn more about the History of Parliament project at the Trust's website, historyofparliamentonline.org, where you can read about the latest research and view a range of free resources, including a special section for schools. And on our website, worldturnedupsidedown.co.uk, you'll find other programmes, including a series of podcasts by Professor Hopper and Professor Edward Vallance of the University of Roehampton, exploring the conflicts between Parliament and Charles I, which resulted in civil war and regicide. To ensure you hear about forthcoming programmes, subscribe to our free monthly newsletter, The World Turned Upside Down. Just click the link on the website or in the programme notes.